know, in order to survive this wave of AI and automation, we need to become more human. And we're starting to see that the skills that are actually in demand right now are these kind of what we would pejoratively call like soft skills. It's things like communication and empathy and leadership and courage, um, the things that machines can't do. The hard part about that is there are forces that are conspiring to make us less human. And we interact with them every day. You know, these are very powerful machines. Every time you look at your phone, you are looking at a device on which hundreds of billions of dollars have been spent to make you distracted from whatever else you might have been thinking about. And so I think we, we tell ourselves that we need to be plugged in, but actually I think in the present and in the future, there will be a real value to being able to separate yourself from your phone and your feeds and your technology, because that's how we get better. I mean, everything in life that makes us better, very little of it happens through the phone. It happens, you know, through taking on personal challenges, through struggling, through raising families, through, you know, building communities. Like that's the stuff that is really hard and, and really rewarding. That's Kevin Roos. And this is the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Rich Roll. I will be your pilot for today's flight. Welcome aboard. So I was reflecting on how I want to introduce and contextualize today's conversation. And I think it's fair to say that really since day one of this show, my intention has been and is to shine a light on truce, truce big and small, to hopefully provoke some questioning of held beliefs about the world, but also about ourselves, all in service of this greater goal of becoming better stewards of the planet, but also in service to becoming better humans and ultimately more human. But right now, humanity faces many existential threats, not the least of which is the advent of artificial intelligence. As we usher in the age of machines, more and more occupations are becoming automated. Social media algorithms not only frack our attention spans for clicks, they have also, and very thoroughly, I should add, manipulated us that we now actually divest much of our decision-making and critical thinking skills, things that literally make us who we are to technology. So the question then becomes, how far can AI go? What are the perils of a society quickly pivoting to automation in all things? How do we avoid displacement and dehumanization? And perhaps most pressing, how can we be happy in a world that is increasingly built by and for machines? These are important questions we all need to be asking. And today's guest is the right guy to help answer them. Kevin Roos is a New York Times bestselling author. He's an award-winning technology columnist for the New York Times. And one of my very favorite people to read and follow online for his many insights on everything from automation to social media, online radicalization, cybersecurity, digital wellness, and generally all things tech. 
If you're a consistent listener or viewer of this show, then you already know well my fondness for Kevin's work. Most notably, his podcast, Rabbit Hole, which is a New York Times produced show hosted by Kevin and all about what the internet is doing to us. In my opinion, it's a non-negotiable must listen. So please check that out if you haven't already. Kevin's latest book, which consumes a significant portion of this conversation is entitled Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. It's sort of part AI primer, part self-help book, survival guide. And it's really all about how to be happy, successful humans in a world that is increasingly built by and for machines. A couple more things I wanna say about Kevin and the conversation to come, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Okay, Kevin Roos. So this is a pretty thorough breakdown of the many, many ways the internet and AI-based algorithmic manipulation is serving to degrade us, to lock us into information silos and ultimately incite emotion for profit. It's also a guide on surviving workplace automation, phone addiction, protecting your time and attention, and most importantly, safeguarding your humanity. In addition, Kevin provides his take on a variety of other tech curiosities from Clubhouse to NFTs, the future of podcasting, and many other subjects. As an admitted Kevin Roos fanboy, this one is a fun treat. It's packed with 
helpful insights to better understand the rapidly evolving shifts our society currently faces, and a reminder that our most powerful trait is our innate humanness. So this is me and Kevin Roos. Look at that. It's Kevin Roos. Thanks so much. This is this is a dream. Well, so delighted to have you here. I'm such a big fan of uh, all the reporting and the work that you've done over the last several years. You really have become one of my favorite follows as somebody myself who's obsessed with the implications of big tech social media platforms and the way in which disinformation infects real world outcomes how you've deconstructed radicalization and and now, which we're gonna talk a lot about today, how we should be thinking about AI and the coming robot apocalypse. And the more immersed I become in trying to understand this rapidly you know, changing um, environment that we find ourselves in, I find myself turning more and more to your reporting and, and your insights and, and your guidance. So I just wanted to thank you for that at the outset. Oh, thanks so much, and and I'm a I'm a big fan of the show, so this is a this is a thrill for me. Oh, cool! That that wow, that's very meaningful. Thank you. Um, and and in reflecting over the last year, there were three things that I think impacted me uh, really profoundly. The first being the social dilemma uh, Netflix documentary. Um, the Feels Good Man documentary. I'm wearing the Feels Good Man T-shirt. Did you see that movie? I haven't seen it yet. No, but should I? Oh, you have to see it. I mean, it's just, you know, internet to the power of a thousand. Like it's right up your alley. I think you'd really enjoy it. Um, and then thirdly, uh, Rabbit Hole, which I've discussed at length many times uh, on the podcast, often with my sometime uh, co-host Adam Skolnick, who's also a New York Times contributor. I just, I love that series. Um, I think it's, must it's a must listen for everybody. I wish that there was uh, a new episode every week. So before we get into future proof and all of that, can we spend a few minutes talking about rabbit hole? Yeah, absolutely, whatever you want. So for people that aren't familiar, maybe it would be worth just providing a little bit of a synopsis. Sure, so rabbit hole is an eight part um, podcast that I helped produce and host um, with the New York Times about basically the the idea was to do a podcast exploring sort of what the internet is doing to us. Um, so I I'm a tech columnist. I report on the internet, and for a long time that meant you know reporting on gadgets and companies that made gadgets and you know software programs and new apps and social media platforms. And then a couple of years ago, it really started to shift um, because what we saw is that a lot of the things that were happening in in the offline world had sort of online antecedents had like mm -hmm. things that were happening on the internet that led directly to things that happened in the offline world. And the, the most jarring and horrible example of that was the shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, and if people remember, that was, you know, the, the really deadly one. Um, I think 52 people ended up dying and the, the shooter was a white nationalist who was radicalized online um, and who was very obviously spending a lot of time online and you live streamed this shooting and and posted about it on on the internet and it was sort of like this internet event that was kind of engineered for virality and it really like 
I I don't report on terrorism. I don't cover mass shootings, but this was such like a, an internet event mm. um, and so deeply tied to the kinds of extremism and, and sort of violent rhetoric I'd seen on places like 4chan and 8chan that I just decided I had to look into that. And I had mm. to figure out, like my question was basically, I mean, I grew up, on the internet, I'm like a child of of the of the internet, and I love technology and the internet. And also, um, I was seeing how it was radicalizing people and turning them into yeah. extremists. And so, I wanted to figure out how that happened. Like, what is it actually doing to us? How what, you know? How do the the systems and the algorithms interact with with you know our information ecosystem? Who are the people who are sort of doing the radicalizing? Like, what is this whole ecosystem, and how is it affecting who we are? So that's what we spent a year digging into, starting with this guy Caleb Kane, um, who was a 26-year-old kid from West Virginia, who um, you know got really into YouTube videos, um, and he became radicalized, and he was able to dig up and send us years worth of his YouTube browsing history. So we actually got to go back and kind of reconstruct how this guy who had supported Obama and cared about the environment and loved Michael Moore movies morphed into this guy who was like deep in the in the kind of alt-right fever swamp and mm-hmm. actually trace his path sort of down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And what was the decision to do it as a podcast as opposed to you know a long read or a series of articles over a period of time? Well, some of it did appear in articles, but it's really like, it's just different to hear it. I mean, you know this from, from doing podcasts, like so much of, so much is conveyed in the voice and so much is um, conveyed in, in, you know, hearing things rather than reading them. And so, especially with this series, which was all about sort of internet media and, you know, the, the charismatic people on YouTube who are radicalizing young white men, like, it's just much more compelling to hear those people talk than to mm-hmm. read, you know, transcriptions of what they're saying. Um, and ultimately, like we had an amazing team of of people um, putting this together, and they sort of came up with the idea of making the whole show sort of sound like the experience of falling into an internet rabbit hole. So right. if you pay attention, it's sort of like it's kind of engineered in this really sort of careful and thoughtful and cool way where you sort of, you know, there are no, um, there are no like intros and outros of the episodes. Um, it just goes like straight into one right. episode from another. And it sort of like mimics the the feeling of falling into an internet rabbit hole and waking up, you know, for, I'm sure everyone's done this. You know, you, you start watching one YouTube video and then four hours later, you're like, why am I watching like videos <laughs> yeah. of trains in Norway? <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Uh, like, how did I get here? And that's sort of the feeling that we wanted to recreate in the show. Yeah, well, you were very successful in that regard. I mean, it it is truly a sonic experience, and it was fascinating to go on this, you know, archaeological exploration of how this young man, you know, step by step finds his way from one place to a very different place, which then, of course, brings up the subject of the algorithm, the nature of the algorithm, and how this is being managed by YouTube. You have a couple interviews with Susan Wojcicki at YouTube. And I guess, so my question is, so much has happened since rabbit hole. Uh, What is your sense of what that algorithm looks like now or the job that YouTube is doing to protect against these sorts of acts of violence in the future? 
Well, I think YouTube is doing a better job than they were. I mean, when when we started reporting the series, they were still sort of saying there wasn't a problem that they didn't mm-hmm. have, you know, extremists on their service. It was they were kind of just like bizarrely uninterested in dealing with what I saw and and a lot of people saw as sort of this growing threat of radicalization that was happening on YouTube primarily. And not just on YouTube, but through YouTube's recommendation algorithm, um, which is responsible for something like 70% of all the time people spend on YouTube is due to that little sidebar that's powered by some of the most sophisticated AI that's ever been created. Um, And so that's the piece that we wanted to sort of connect was how is the algorithm sort of pulling people into the, it's not just that people are falling into rabbit holes; it's that they're they're sort of being pulled. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is that force, and how has that evolved over time? And so I think they've made a lot of changes. You know, since the since the series came out, they've you know updated their policies on hate speech and white nationalism. Um, you know, they're kicking neo Nazis off. Some of the you know people, some of the worst you know people in that world have been sort of deplatformed, um, and they've changed the recommendation algorithm now, so that you know they they say that they're they they call it borderline content, like stuff that basically doesn't violate their rules technically, but is like not great. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're they're showing something like seventy percent fewer recommendations for that kind of content through this algorithm now. So I think there there's still obviously more to do. There's still a ton of of extremism on every internet platform, and, and YouTube I think has has a ways to go in that regard. Um, but I think they're at least aware of the problem now in a way that they maybe weren't when we started reporting. Yeah, and in in fairness, and you pose this question to his name's Caleb, right? The young man. Yep. Um, the very same algorithm that that you know prompted him to descend down this rabbit hole is the algorithm that also ultimately introduces him to other ideas and helps him, you know, start to critically think about his his long held beliefs and ultimately change them. So. The argument could be made that the algorithm ultimately served a positive purpose or or worked in a way that is counterintuitive to the less nuanced narrative that it just you know pushes people in one direction only. For sure, I mean this algorithm is is it has no idea. That thing is it has no idea what it's recommending, right? right? <laughs> yeah. It is just a machine, and it is looking at at these like you know blank boxes, and it's saying okay when people. Watch box A. They spend you know ten percent more time on YouTube than box B. So let's show them box A. Like it has no mm-hmm. idea what's in box A. So it is not like anyone at YouTube is fiddling with the dials and saying, okay, we want to show them more right wing content or more left wing content. It's just not. That's not how it works. Um, so for Caleb, what was really interesting is, yeah, he did get pulled out of this far right rabbit hole that he was in um, because he stumbled into this part of YouTube called BreadTube, which is this sort of left wing, like hyper ironic, very online community of YouTubers who are basically just sort of combating right wing radicalization by kind of mimicking the aesthetics of how right wing radicalization works on YouTube. So, you know, you know, all the videos that are like, you know, Ben Shapiro destroys like helpless college student, you know, right. or like, right. you know, it's sort of like that combative thing. And and so they were making videos that were like, college student destroys Ben Shapiro, you know, sort of taking uh-huh. all the all the lessons that they learned and trying to kind of hijack the algorithm in this way that would 
you know, where their videos would show up to people who were looking for this other stuff. So in in some ways it's it's not that the algorithm sort of pushed him in, in, in to the left, it's that creators who are the other piece of this equation had kind of formed this strategy around the algorithm in in an attempt to get into the recommendations of people like Caleb and bring them out of the far right. Right, getting more savvy about how YouTube works to marshal that engine and weaponize it in a direction counter to the narrative that they're trying to confront. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. and that's I think like what drew me to this topic in the first place is like I started feeling like the entire world was kind of arranging itself around these algorithms. Like, you know, all the political figures in, in who were succeeding were like doing it by like hacking the you know the the Facebook algorithm or the Twitter algorithm. Mm. Like it posting became this like very valuable skill in our politics and in our culture. You know, the celebrities who were figuring out how to use TikTok and and YouTube, um, you know, to to sort of get themselves out there, like they were becoming the most famous people in the world. Um, you know, and and it just felt like this like the world that we see is so um so formed and shaped by the decisions that a few engineers and a few CEOs mm. are making in ways that I don't think we fully understand yet, but that are appearing in all of our lives every day. Yeah, and, and it should be said that this is not simply endemic to YouTube. One of the things that you've done over the past year is share um, the top most shared, the top 10 most shared uh, posts on Facebook every day. And they tend to be overwhelmingly of the right wing. And so that begs the question, is this because this is where the country's at and this is what they want? Or is it that this particular strain of politics is just better at understanding how Facebook works to get their stuff to travel virally? Yeah, I think it's really hard to untangle those things because one thing that we know is that these algorithms, these recommendation engines, they don't just recommend things to us, they can change our minds. Um, there's a, a, a French researcher named Camille Roth who has this. So he distinguishes between read your mind algorithms and change your mind algorithms. And we think that a lot of the stuff we're dealing with on an everyday basis is is reading our minds. Like I like this Netflix show, so I'm also going to like this Netflix show. But in reality, like Netflix can corrupt that process by saying like, uh-huh. we want you to watch this thing instead of this other thing. And so they're actually steering, you know, setting up our choices in such a way that we actually don't, we're not the ones sort of making the call, even if it feels like we are. Right. And so that process is really interesting and, and I think really troubling. Right, and that's, that's a central tenet of, of future proof, right? We tend to think about uh, automation in the context of the robot apocalypse. But in reality, it's these uh, tectonic plates that are shifting under our feet currently that we're really not even consciously aware of. I mean, you make the point in the book about buying a pair of shoes and you know, I don't even, or do, did I really even want these shoes or did I just think because it was in front of me that they, that they were cool? Like we have divested our decision-making power and you know, a certain aspect of, of critical thinking to algorithms that are making these decisions for us and deluding ourselves that we're actually, you know, that we have agency over that when in fact, you know, that's less true than it's ever been. 
Yeah, I mean, recommendations are so powerful um, to a degree that I didn't fully appreciate until I started looking into this book and talking to the engineers who actually program recommendations algorithms. Um, there's been some great studies that basically show that we trust what, what, what algorithms recommend for us more than we trust our own tastes. If you show mm -hmm. us, you know, if, if you give us, you know, a food that we hate or a song that we hate, and then you tell us, you know, this, this was algorithmically selected for you based on your pre-existing tastes, we actually like it. Like we, we right. let the machines override our own preferences. And so part of the, you know, I, I think you're, you're exactly right that we think of automation as this kind of external force in the world, but it's, there's a kind of internalized automation that I think is something that we're just starting to deal with. And I think we're, you know, that's, that's part of what people are sort of trying to unpack is like, what do I actually think and believe and like mm. and enjoy? And like, what is being put there by some machine? Right. If you, you know, the, every day you open up your phone, some, something has occurred in the news cycle. And before you can take a minute to, you know, read a neutral article about it. You go to Twitter and you just see what everyone's hot take is on it. And then you're like, well, I like that guy. So I guess I agree with that person's perspective on this. And less and less we're, you know, left to our own, you know, interior spaces to figure out, you know, how that perspective aligns with our core values. Like we, we really have just outsourced so much of this and it happens so um, incrementally that we're not aware of it, like I said earlier, and we all think that we're not we're not susceptible to it, like other people are. But I'm good. Yeah, there's this there's a a, a researcher named Oscar Gandhi who has this sort of theory about the difference between identity and identification. So identity is what we have. That's what we're you know we develop during childhood. It's what we work on when we work on ourselves. It's who I am, who, you know, what kinds of things I like, what I value, you know, what my relationships are like, how I want to show up in the world. Like those sort of basic human questions. And then there's identification, which is kind of the categories we belong to, the tribes that we associate with, the kind of the, the sort of consumer segments we we are a part of. And that's what is being used by the tech companies and the platforms to sell us stuff, to you know, shift our views, to change us into a version of ourselves that is more predictable and clear cut than we might actually be. Mm. Um, and that has an effect. And when identification becomes identity, like that is really bad. Like that means we have right. lost the plot and we are no longer in charge of our own lives. Right. Um, back to the algorithm subject for a second, you, in addition to uh, these conversations that you have with Susan, you uh, introduce PewDiePie into the equation and kind of, you know, show the history of this guy's ascent to becoming the emperor of the internet. And it's really the story of a young man grappling with the responsibilities of you know, so many millions of people paying attention to what he says and making mistakes in real time and trying to understand where he's gone awry and and where that responsibility rests and there's a parallel with Susan in that you know she being like the 16th employee at Google from the very beginning when YouTube was just cat videos etc and then inheriting a responsibility that nobody could have predicted and grappling with the very real world problems of how to police is the wrong word but manage 
that responsibility. And it just seems like an almost impossible task for a team of people to manage whether with some aspect of automation or, or not. And I just don't know with you know more and more people uploading every day and the billions of hours that are on there, how that can be accomplished. And of course, from an ethical perspective, how much of that should be managed or policed? Yeah, there are, there's a lot in what you just said. And I think that you're right to sort of point out that this is a, the, the task that these companies have set for themselves is really an impossible one. I mean, to responsibly curate billions of hours of video every day um, is is probably impossible. And you can you can get better or worse at doing it, but you're never going to be perfect. Um, and I think that the the thing about algorithms is that they have goals, right? You you have an algorithm, and you are trying to use that algorithm to maximize some variable, and. With YouTube, that that variable has actually changed over the years. So at first, it was we're trying to maximize the number of clicks. Like we want people to click on videos, um, and so they implemented this algorithm, and it worked for a while. And then people started to game it with these like clickbait titles, and they would have these sensational thumbnails. And then you'd open a video, and it would be you know a guy you know scratching uh, scratching his armpits you know right. for for forty five minutes. <laughs> it didn't have anything to do with with the what the title was. And so then they changed the variable to watch time, and they said we want people to watch YouTube for as long as possible. And so the algorithm was trained and calibrated to produce watch time. And that worked. Like it was a really good algorithm at producing watch time. Unfortunately, mm. one of the ways that it produced a lot of watch time was by steering people into these extremist communities. And so that is a side effect that I don't think they anticipated. Um, and that you know, I talked to one guy who was a former YouTube engineer, um, Guillaume Chazlot, who was part of the team that developed the AI, and he sort of brought up some of these concerns. He said, I think we're, you know, we're only showing people one side of the story. We're we're not, you know, we're feeding them conspiracy theories. And he was kind of ignored and eventually got pushed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the, the goals that we give our algorithms are so, so important. And it doesn't have to be watch time. It doesn't have to be clicks. It doesn't have to be outrage. Um, it doesn't have to be engagement. It could be something else. And I think the tech companies need to adjust what they're aiming for. And I think good things could come of that. Mm. So that's an optimistic bent. I, I'm mostly optimistic. I mean, I know I write about yeah. horrible things happening on the internet, <laughs> but, I, but I actually like this surprises people because my, my like Twitter feed is all like QAnon and like extremists right. and, and neo Nazis. And like I, I deal in a, like a lot of like really gross stuff happening on the internet. Um, but I am actually like, I'm optimistic about people. I'm not optimistic about like all people, but I'm, I'm optimistic about it, that if you give people good information, they will make better choices. Mm. Um, and I think that you know one thing that we sort of often don't realize is that algorithms are just people. Um, I mean, algorithms are not some magical detached thing. They are built by humans who give them goals, who tell them what to maximize, who instruct, who, you know, who who calibrate them and train the models. Um, Kathy O'Neill, who's a, a great writer on this subject, says that uh, algorithms are opinions embedded in code. Mm-hmm. And I think when we start to realize that, that these algorithms aren't some iron law of the universe, that they can be changed and adjusted, it becomes a lot more hopeful because you start to realize like how it is right now isn't how it has to be. 
Sure, but at the same time, there is a fundamental misalignment of incentives uh, across all of these big social media platforms in that when they're oriented around maximizing watch time or keeping you on the platform, it's generally for the purpose of serving you up as many ads as possible so that they can ratchet up their ad revenue. And until or unless there is a new sort of conceptual orientation around what a social media platform can and should be where the incentives are set up in a healthier dynamic we're going to continue to see, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, bad actors and gaming of the system that w- that we've seen to date. Totally, and, I, and that's why I think we need new incentives for for these networks and for the networks that are going to replace them. I mean, every social network gets replaced eventually, right? It's sort of, right. You know, one of the parts of one of the most predictable things in the tech world is that every Companies dies and is replaced. Every every you know MySpace has a Facebook. Every you know mm-hmm. every Friendster has a MySpace. And so I think what we're trying to figure out right now is like what's going to come after our current social platforms and how will they be different. And my hope is that seeing how the last generation sort of screwed things up and how long it took them to fix their problems will instruct the people building the next generation. And maybe they'll still make mistakes and this is still a very much a work in progress. And I think some of this is just sort of us evolving or adapting to our new environment technologically. But I, I'm, I'm hopeful when I see you know, people making more thoughtful decisions at these companies. Um, not that necessarily those companies will become nonprofits and give back all the money that they made from promoting extremism or whatever, but just, just that people are at least aware that these pitfalls are out there. Yeah, sure. I mean, I suppose the current test case in the petri dish right now is is Clubhouse, and this is something you've reported on, and made a very keen observation, which is that all of the things that we traditionally see in the arc of a social media platform are all kind of happening simultaneously with Clubhouse. Like it starts out like this utopian place where everybody's sharing ideas and it's wonderful, and then enter the bad actors, and then you know. Okay, so what are the community guidelines going to be, and then how are we going to monetize that? But this, there's, this is all occurring with a very compressed timeline, which I think is is interesting in that it elucidates like how fast everything is moving now. Like the fact that this life cycle is occurring instantaneously. When with Facebook, it took years and years and years for this kind of dialogue and progression to unfold. Totally. This is all happening so fast, and like Clubhouse isn't even technically released yet. Like it's still I know it's in, still like in beta, it's still in beta, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, but it's already been through like the first ten years of Facebook's problems, mm-hmm. um, and and it's now sort of trying to figure out like where to draw the lines. But I think Clubhouse is really instructive to me because if you, I don't know how much time you spend on there, but I spend a fair bit of time on there, and it seems to me like like therapy for people who have been like traumatized by other social media platforms. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like it's yeah. like group therapy. Be where you're like, okay, what did we just do to ourselves for the last ten years? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I was in a, a room the other day, and someone was the, the topic was sort of like why we hate our Twitter personas. Like, like a lot of people, I think, have spent years crafting these personas that aren't even really them, and that they sort of grow to hate because everything has to be a little sharper for the retweets, and like you've got to like throw the throw the jabs in there, and like mm-hmm. start fights, and like maybe you're 
saying things that you don't even really mean and you look at them later and you're like, why did I do that? Um, and, and I think people are starting to really, there's like this, this growing feeling of like, I don't like who I show up as on the internet, on social mm. media. And so Clubhouse to me feels like a response to that piece of, of where we all are right now. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I've been a bit of a lurker there. I have yet to chime in on anything. I'm gonna host my first Clubhouse chat in another week or two. Um, but I've just been trying to sort of listen in like yourself and figure out what's going on. And it does seem to me fundamentally different. There is something about the participatory aspect of it. It's like being on a conference call with a whole bunch of people where everybody gets to say, the fact that it's not recorded and then it disappears afterwards feels like it, 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 it sort of, it's like a pressure valve release on that idea that I, I, everything I say has to be finely honed and directly on point. And it seems to be supportive in general, like everybody conducts themselves respectfully of each other. Maybe there's rooms where that's not occurring, but that's been my experience today. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, to me, it feels more human. Mm. It feels like we are more complicated people on Clubhouse than we are on Twitter, where we're all sort of flattened down into these like two-dimensional avatars that just like fight with each other all the time. Um, you know, I've had people who like call me the worst names possible on Twitter and then they show up in a clubhouse room and they're perfectly, you know, pleasant <laughs> and, and cordial. Yeah. And it's like, what happened to How that confusing. person? Like, yeah. yeah, like where did that guy go? And why is he uh-huh. not, you know, calling me a communist? Um, like it, it um, it it feels like, and I don't know that Clubhouse. I mean, Clubhouse has problems. Look, there's tons of you know, harassment and hate speech. Yeah. It's, it's got all the problems that any you know big social network would have. Um, but I do think we're starting to see new models emerging that maybe allow people to be a little bit more human. The dis, I mean, it's having a conversation voice to voice is so much different than having it avatar to avatar. And I think it's better, and I think it's more humane, and I think it leads to leads to better places. And so I think that's what the next generation of tech platforms are going to be built around: is like, you know, how do we show up as ourselves on the internet um, and get away from these kind of two dimensional caricatures we've created? Sure. What's your sense of how it will impact podcasting? I don't think it's the same thing. I mean, it's 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 there's some overlap, um, especially you know the kind of like more produced clubhouse rooms where you have you know hosts and guests and some parts. There's sort of like a, a little Venn diagram middle there, um, but it's so different. Um, yeah. And and podcasts are are wonderful because you can really go deep on a subject. Um, clubhouse I found is sort of more like it's it's like more like. Um, like going to a bar, you know, and you're talking yeah. and, you know, one minute you're talking about, you know, uh, video games and the next minute you're talking about crypto and, and it's just sort of this sort of uh, moving conversation that is kind of fun to be a part of. My, my big thing about Clubhouse is I don't know whether it's going to outlast the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when people can go outside again and talk to their friends and go to bars, like I, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't see myself spending three hours a night on my phone mm. listening to some guy talk about you know nfts for uh, you know for for artists well I think there will be some breakout clubhouse stars and those are going to be the people who are showing up consistently to host a a very kind of curated experience so it's going to be less about the meandering nonsense and I think more targeted and 
With that, you'll see monetization, whether it's subscriptions or ad supported you know, shows. So I think it will not only survive, but thrive. But I think the early entries where it's just a bunch of people talking about nothing, you know, I, I do agree. I think that people will tire of that. I mean, that, that was a lot of podcasts too in the early days, yeah. right? It was just it's, like people talking about nothing. It's a lot of podcasts now. <laughs> yeah, but it's still, it still is. I, what are there are like 2 million podcasts, so there's plenty of that. Right, so um, I, I think as, as platforms mature, like the bar kind of gets higher, you know, like you need to show mm-hmm. up with a little bit more, you know, uh, fire to like make a dent. But um, but I think right now Clubhouse is still in the weird right. experimental phase, which I love. I I love the we like I I have no interest in like the boring like business Clubhouse rooms. I love the weirdos. Like there's this group um, the other day who was making it was it was called like Whale Moan, and it was all people right. mo- just moaning like whales in a clubhouse room. Uh, there's <laughs> it's, there's like uh-huh. there's like this group that uh, you know this group called the Cotton Club where like you go in and you change your avatar to a black and white photo and you pretend like you're in the 1920s and someone mm. says like, "Hey, Rich, like what are you having tonight? What are you drinking?" And there's right. jazz playing. It's like it's like sort of a you know a, a fun like virtual world. So I love the weirdos who are experimenting with stuff on there. Yeah, cool. Um, all right, well, one more thing about uh, Rabbit Hole before we move on. Um, the last two episodes focus on QAnon. And for a lot of people, I have to believe that that perhaps may have been their introduction to the world of QAnon. And um, at that time when the podcast was first released, it of course metastasized into this whole thing. Um, you have written about your perspective on the current state of QAnon, but because so much occurred in the aftermath of completing Rabbit Hole, you know, I, I do think it would be good to hear a little bit about your perspective on QAnon now, and also whether there is a plan to do a season two. Like, there's still so much to be mined here. Like, I would love for you guys to continue this project. Yeah, it's um, well. I'll I'll talk about the QAnon piece of it first. I mean, what what drew me to QAnon? I I started off in journalism as a religion reporter. I uh, I spent a semester um, undercover at uh, Liberty University, the Jerry Falwell's mm-hmm. super right wing Christian university, and I, I came from like a very secular home, um, very liberal secular, and and I and so I was just like fascinated by the existence of these like right wing evangelicals. So I. Went there for a semester, took all the classes, you know, sang in their church choir, lived in the dorms, uh, wrote a book about that, and that was sort of my introduction into journalism. And when I started hearing about QAnon a couple of years ago, it really triggered the like, oh, this is a religion thing for me. It was like there are all these people; they believe in this like narrative about how the world operates and who's pulling the strings and like these powers beyond our comprehension, and they're following this mystical character on 4chan who's dropping little clues that they're all sort of interpreting together. And it's filling a sort of community need in a lot of their lives mm. that I don't think people, you know, people think QAnon is just like a bunch of wackos like being insane on the internet and there is some of that, but people are also using this as a, it's become people's social lives. Um, it's They're making friends, it's an activity that they do together on the internet. Um, it's a lot of fun for them. And so I, I felt a real parallel between that and sort of the religious reporting that I'd done earlier in my career. And so I just decided like, I gotta investigate this. So I spent a long time talking to QAnon believers, hanging out in chat rooms, um, listening to their conversations, 
um, reading up on the movement and we did these two episodes about QAnon. Um, and then after that, like at the time QAnon was sort of like this novelty thing. It was like, oh, look at these interesting weirdos. Like they're, they're maybe a little violent sometimes around the edges, but like mostly, you know, it's just strange and, and troubling, but like maybe not an immediate threat. And then they marched on the Capitol, right? Like then it was like right. the QAnon riot at the Capitol. And, you know, QAnon was a big part of the Stop the Steal thing. Um, and suddenly it was like, oh, this is not just like a cult of internet weirdos. This is like an extremist political movement that is like creating real offline violence and harms. So yeah, I mean, I think there's so much more there. I'm still fascinated by QAnon. I think the movement is kind of dissipating um, mm-hmm. because, you know, Trump isn't the president anymore. Which was the whole the whole fun of it was that Trump was the president, um, and so now I think a lot of their predictions have not come true. There are no mass arrests of satanic pedophiles in government, and so I think a lot of people have sort of quietly moved on. Right. Um, and as far as season two. Um, you should uh, talk to my my bosses at the New York Times, but I, I it's it's really like I think it would shock you how hard it is to make something like that. Oh, you like, don't have to tell me. You know, <laughs> I mean, I I can't imagine. Like, I have such an appreciation for the production quality of what you guys created. I mean, that is a Herculean effort to pull that together and to kind of create the experience that you created. I know how much work it is just for me to do simple conversations with people. To do what you do is a, an entirely different thing. Like I, I understand that that requires a tremendous amount of time and resources and money, et cetera, but it's tremendously valuable. You know, I, I, you. I, yeah, I, 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 I'm happy to call your bosses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please do. I mean, I was shocked by that too, because I come from the world of like writing, which mm-hmm. is like, Time consuming and you know requires a lot of thoughtfulness. But you know, I think podcasting on you know that that kind of podcasting, the kind of hyper-produced narrative podcast, is actually more like making a film than than writing a newspaper article. Right. And I didn't appreciate that. Like you gather, you know, hundreds of hours of tape and then you cut it down into, you know, 36 minutes, you know, and it's like all this work, and then you're like, that's that's it. Eight episodes, right. but 27 minutes. Right. <laughs> right. So, but I I think it's I think it was. I mean, it was a ton of fun. Uh, very rewarding. I love podcasts as a medium, and I hope I can keep doing them. So, yeah, if you uh, if you want to call up uh, my bosses, I would. Uh, yeah, I would not turn <laughs> <Okay>. you down. <laughs> cool. Well, let's talk about the new book. Um, first of all, it's it's pub day for you, so congrats on that. That's Thank very you. Exciting. Um, it's not that much of a leap given where your focus has been, you know, talking about algorithms, which is by its very nature and, you know, a discussion around automation to, you know, the broader conversation around AI and what the future and the present looks like in terms of, uh, you know, our personal lives, our careers and what our communities look like. And what I appreciate about the book is that you approached it. Well, first of all, it's like part primer on what AI is and what the nature of automation truly looks like. But then it's also this, you know, sort of uh, prescriptive manual on how to deal with all of this. It's like, it is in many ways a self-help book, which is very cool. 
Um, but it's laced with nuance. It's neither utopian nor dystopian. Like you're really trying to grapple with all of this in the most objective way. Um, so maybe we could start with just, you know, what prompted you to want to write a book about this? Like, what was the question lingering in your mind that that led to this work? Well, it was literally a self help book. I mean, I was mostly asking like. Is this going to happen to me? Like, am right. I going to lose my job to some <laughs> algorithm? You know, am I turning into a zombie who just like scrolls through his feeds all day and then goes to bed and wakes up and does it again? Like, I was really worried about what I was becoming as a result of these algorithms and this automation and this AI and what my future was going to look like. So, and I was really, I, you know, I go to a lot of tech events for work and I talk to a lot of people in the industry. And I was really, so this was a, a few years ago, and I was really sort of shocked by how simplistic and sort of theoretical the conversation around AI and automation was. You know, there were people who said, all of this is terrible. It's going to, you know, robots are going to take all the jobs. We're going to be unemployed and homeless, and it's going to be awful. We're going to be, you know, the people in Wally, you know, driving around on our chairs, yeah. you know, drinking, you know, big gulps. And, uh, and there are other people who think this is going to be amazing and AI is going to help us discover new cancer drugs and fix the climate crisis. And, and, and those were sort of binary opinions, but there wasn't a lot in the middle. Um, and there also wasn't much that felt practical. Like, what do I actually do if I am working in a job that is likely to be automated? How do I know if I'm in the risk zone? And if I am, like, what can I do? Do I go back to school? Do I learn to code? Like, do I start sucking up to Alexa so that when the robot revolution comes, you know, I don't, I, I end up on the robot side? You know, like, what is the what is the actual action item here? And so I couldn't find that. Like I, I kept just trying to find like anything that would help me deal with this problem and it didn't exist. And so I decided to write it. So the first half of the book is the kind of diagnosis part. That's like, what is actually happening with AI and automation? How is it changing the world around us? It's not about the future, it's about the present um, and the ways that these things are showing up in our lives and what it's doing to us. And then the second half, as you said, is the more prescriptive part where I'm telling people like, here are nine things you can do to future-proof your life, your career, and your community. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the present, because I think it, it sort of belies this conventional notion that AI is, or, or automation is all about, you know, robots on the factory floor, um, and that's certainly the case, but that's almost like the past, like that's been accomplished. And there is a lot of AI happening right now, right underneath our feet that we're unaware of, but has you know real kind of existential implications in terms of the workforce, not just with blue collar workers, but now very much you know white collar workers. Yeah, I think we still have this outdated notion that automation is something that happens to people in car factories um, and that it you know comes in and there's a you come into work one day and there's a machine there and sorry sorry rich you know your job has yeah. been automated uh, you know have fun finding new work that's not really how it works anymore most of the time um, and it, that's not who it happens to most of the time um, most people who are being displaced by AI and automation are not Manufacturing workers, um, they're people in retail, they're people doing clerical work, and they're increasingly white collar professionals, like doing the kinds of things that you mm -hmm. and I do. Um, people in sales, people in finance, people in medicine, people in law. Um, 
there are now algorithms that can diagnose certain types of cancers more accurately than human radiologists. Um, so it's not just like truck drivers and you know McDonald's cashiers and factory workers. Um, and so I think that requires us to sort of update our mental model of, of what this stuff is and how it's going to affect our lives because for a long time this was sort of like people like me, you know, thought this is someone else's problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with that, um, you know, from my perspective, it's almost that nobody is immune, right? Like you talk about how, you know, one of the kind of catalysts for this was understanding, you know, when you, early in your career, when you were a, a financial reporter, that a lot of those articles are now generated by AI. There isn't even a journalist that writes these financial report documents. So if that could be the case, then, you know, is anybody safe? And, you know, it was it last week where there was the whole, you know, Tom Cruise deep fake thing on TikTok. Like even Tom Cruise is not immune from being, you know, automated into into movies. So, you know, that that's it is frightening and it does beg the question of like, you know, what are we going to do about this? But at the same time, kind of balancing out against that, you also see, you know, these AI generated screenplays that are terrible or you know, the point of sale machine at the grocery store that never works right. Like a lot of this stuff is super janky. Like it feels like it's super futuristic and also, you know, completely ineffectual at the same time. Yeah, there's a great concept um, that I, I got from these two economists, uh, Daron Osamoglu and Pascal Restrepo, um, who write about automation and its effects on labor markets. And they talk about this concept of so-so automation, which is sort of the janky automation you're talking about. It's mm-hmm. like the grocery store, you know, self-checkout thing, or like the call center, you know, you call for customer service when you're, you know, um, you, when you need to like renew your insurance or something. And like it's the kind of automation that actually isn't much better if if it's at all better than the humans it replaced but it is cheaper and it allows companies to reduce their costs but it doesn't like make them i mean in the past what's happened is we've gotten technology that displaces some old jobs but it also creates new jobs so right mm-hmm. the the car <laughs> you know the automobile displaced a lot of carriage drivers and people who sold buggy whips and blacksmiths who made horseshoes, but suddenly you could get a job as a chauffeur or a car dealer or a mechanic. Uh, And so that's kind of the way that we've been able to kind of keep the economy running even as people get displaced. Um, But these new kinds of automation that we're seeing a lot more of, these kind of so-so forms of automation, they're basically just good enough to replace humans, but not good enough to enable other kinds of work and to grow productivity and to grow the economy. And so the solution is actually not less automation, it's better automation. Right, you talk about the productivity paradox. Like if this, if these innovations in AI were so good, then how come we're not infinitely more productive than we were before? We're kind of the same. And what's qualitatively different about this moment is that uh, the AI that we're onboarding at the moment isn't having that reciprocal impact on creating new jobs. It's eliminating jobs, but we're not seeing you know the opportunities that generally come with new innovations. And that's kind of the hearkening of something very different. Totally, yeah, there's the whole industry that's grown up in the last 10 years and it's called uh, RPA, it's Robotic Process Automation. And this is basically 
companies that sell software to replace humans in the workplace. Um, so they're you know companies you've never heard of, like UiPath and Automation Anywhere and Blue Prism. They're kind of these faceless like B two B software companies, but they're huge and they're making tons of money. And the way that they're doing that is by selling you know Coca Cola or Walgreens, uh, you know, a software package and saying we can do with one bot what used to take 20 people in billing to do. Um, and so executives love this stuff because it's cheap mm-hmm. and it's easy and it's efficient. Um, and even if it's not quite as good as the humans who used to do that job, even if it makes some mistakes and you have to kind of come in and correct it, you're still lowering your cost. And so that's what they're going after. And that industry, I think, flies under the people's radar because it's not flashy. It's not you know Siri and Alexa. It's not flying cars. It's not... You know, self-driving, you know, Ubers. It's 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 this very basic office automation software, but it's had a huge impact on the labor market. Right, and of course, the pandemic has presented the opportune moment to implement a lot of these automated systems um, while everybody's working from home, and to do it in kind of a, a you know a guiltless manner. So, talk a little bit about how COVID has accelerated this process. Well, COVID has has really transformed the way that executives feel about automation. And that has been the biggest thing. I mean, there are certainly companies that have used automation to kind of get through COVID. So mm-hmm. meatpacking plants, you know, FedEx, shipping companies, um, they've had to sort of bring in robotics and automation just to be able to kind of keep up with demand while some of their humans are out sick. Um, but there, there's this other piece of this, which is that I think for a long time, executives knew that they could automate people, um, but they were hesitant to do it because they didn't want to be seen as job killers. Um, you know, they they saw what happened to executives in the '90s who sent jobs, who outsourced jobs to India and China. Um, they became villains, and and you know, they they were sort of the bad guys in in global capitalism. And so I think a lot of them sort of hesitated. They said, well, you know, let's try to do a little bit of automation, but like maybe not the kind that's going to replace anyone and, mm-hmm. and we'll sort of play it safe. And then COVID happened and it was like, someone described it to me as a consultant who helps companies sort of do this kind of automation said, it's basically the executives are saying like, we don't care anymore. Like we just need to do what we need to do for our business. And he said, it's, it's made automation a lot more politically acceptable because mm-hmm. Tons of people are out of work, businesses are shutting down. And so people, I think, are a lot more sort of forgiving of companies that need to make these changes right now. Um, so, so their floodgates have kind of been opened in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, before we get into the, the prescriptive aspect of all of this, uh, you know, what was, was there anything that surprised you in all the research that you've done? I mean, obviously, you're very you know, tech fluent and savvy going into this, but what, what was something that you didn't expect that you learned? Well, I had sort of bought this narrative that I had heard from people in Silicon Valley, which is that basically every time there's like a big tech transformation, whether it's the first industrial revolution or the invention of electricity or you know the kind of factory automation of the 1960s and 70s, that this has gone pretty smoothly. Like that's the sort of story that people tell out here in the Bay Area mm-hmm. is like, yeah, there were some farmers who had to learn how to work in factories, but like 
overall, this improved everyone's lives. People were happy that they no longer had to do the old jobs. And, um, and so I went back and I actually read a lot of the primary sources, like people's you know, journals from the Industrial Revolution, <laughs> things like that. And yeah. like, it sucked for a lot of people. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this was not a, a happy time in a lot of workers' lives because all of a sudden, you know, they had to learn new skills, go to a new place to work, deal with these like awful working conditions. There's child labor, there's exploitation on a massive scale and workers' wages actually didn't reflect the increased productivity. And, you know, corporate owners and factory owners were making a ton more money because of all the automation, Mm -hmm. but workers weren't actually seeing a lot of that. Um, And this happened, you know, again with electricity and and again with factory automation in the 1960s and 70s. So I think this, there's a great book um, by this economist named um, Carl Frey called The Technology Trap. And it's all about how we've kind of, we've kind of invented this, this history where technology just comes in and, and you know, there's a little bit of displacement, it's a little rocky for a few years, but then everyone moves on and we're prosperous and happy and, and you know, technology is just sort of the, the grand march of progress. And he basically says like, mm, that's not really how it goes. And his line is something like, if this is just another industrial revolution we're living through, then like, alarm bells should be ringing. Like we should be really freaked out. Right. Um, yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> but, the, but there is a hopeful, like <laughs> I, I wanna make it clear that like this is not a book that's like all doom and gloom because right. I don't actually think we are screwed. Um, and in fact, I think that we, we have, we know from history and from just looking at our environment, like what we need to do to survive and to be happy and successful. It's actually not like, we're, we're, this is not destiny. Um, we don't have to end up suffering in the same way that people have when they've been displaced throughout history because mm. we, we actually know what to do to prevent that. Right, and, and, and the solution, the thesis that you lay out in the book is essentially to to uh, you know make yourself I don't know bulletproof but you know to protect yourself against this you know rising tide that solution resides in being the most human that we can possibly be it's about you know cultivating our inner humanity which is you know uh, a thesis in contradiction to a more conventional narrative which is if you want to be competitive in this world it's all about stem you got to learn how to code you have to be computer proficient. But those, as you point out in the book, like all of those pursuits are the first to be automated and a terrain in which a human is very ill-equipped to compete with a supercomputer. Yeah, that, that's a really perceptive reading. And I think that's, that's right. Um, you know, for a long time, we've been training people to effectively be machines. We've been telling them, you know, major in engineering, learn to code, optimize your life like if there's anything that's inefficient or or suboptimal about your life you know take that out and get as much done as you can you know per, all this hustle culture we see is like very much a product of that sort of attitude about what's valuable in the economy and that was true for a long time like you could differentiate yourself through hard work and hustle and just pure effort mm-hmm. but that's like not what's going to happen uh, that's not what's happening right now. And we're starting to see um, that the skills that are actually in demand right now are these kind of what we would 
pejoratively call like soft skills. It's things like communication and empathy and leadership and courage, um, the things that machines can't do. Um, you're never going to be able to out hustle an algorithm. Like it's just, mm-hmm. just not possible. Um, they can work 24 hours a day and do millions of calculations a second and you're just never going to keep up. And so the, the value is, is going to shift from the sort of effort-based things to the kind of emotional and social things. Um, and in the book, I talk about three sort of categories of work that I think are going to be really resistant to automation. And I think that's sort of where people should go. Mm-hmm. That being, uh, does that have to do with being surprising, social, and scarce, which is basically your first tenet in this list of nine things. Yeah, you got it. So those are the three types of work that I think is going to be hard to automate. And this was, you know, drawn from interviews with tons of AI executives, and this was not just me sort of sitting in my office like dreaming up a strategy. And this is based on on a ton of reporting um, and. The things that I asked AI experts were basically, what are humans good at that machines right now are bad at? Um, And they told me that that basically falls into these three categories, surprising, social, and scarce. So let's just take them one at a time. So surprising is sort of like work that involves kind of irregular environments, changing rules, um, lots of variables, um, things that aren't predictable or regular. Like AI really likes rules and bounded environments and structure. And so that's why it's really good at playing chess, for example. Because chess, every game of chess has exactly the same rules. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, train an AI to be a kindergarten teacher, like it's, it's not going to do so well, <laughs> right? Like uh-huh. that's going to, it's going to be pretty bad at that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's because there's so many environments, there's so many variables, there's so much going wrong at any given time. Um, you have to be really adaptable and flexible to do that job. And so that's, for now, that's human work. Mm-hmm. Um, social jobs um, are jobs that involve making people feel things rather than making things. So um, this is you know all the sort of compassion jobs we think of: social workers, home care workers, um, ministers, therapists, people like that. But it also includes things that you wouldn't think of as being social jobs, like uh, like baristas, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, on one level. That's a job that got automated a long time ago. We have machines in our houses that make perfectly good coffee, but we still like to go to, I mean, pre-COVID, we still like to go to coffee shops Mm -hmm. um, because there's a human element there. We're getting something out of that transaction that's more than just a cup of coffee. Um, So those kinds of jobs are, are, are gonna be hard to automate because machines aren't that good at making us feel things and people are yeah. much better at that. And then the, the final category is scarce jobs, which is sort of people who have rare skills, um, are excellent in their fields, um, people who are sort of working in like low fault tolerant environments. So people, you know, like EMTs and people who answer the mm-hmm. phone when you call 911, um, those jobs are gonna be very hard to automate. When I think about you and your career, I see somebody who you know, created a situation in which you differentiated yourself from your peers. Like you, on some level, you've created a personal brand around the kind of beat that you're on and the stories that you tell. Um, and I just know as somebody who follows you, yes, you know, I have reverence for the New York Times and that means something, but I'm not, 
opening up the New York Times app to see what the New York Times has to say about subject X. It's like, I wanna know what Kevin thinks about this, or I wanna know what Taylor Lorenz thinks about this other internet thing, or you know, whether it's Nicholas Kristof or David Brooks or whoever it is, this idea that um, you inject your work with your personality and that becomes so embedded in what you do that it, you know, some AI could cover a subject matter, but it wouldn't have the imprimatur of what you do. And so you create, you create career safety for yourself by carving that out. Yeah, and I wanna be clear, like that, this was not an intentional strategy on my part. Like I did not think like <laughs> I am gonna run from the robots by like by by starting podcasts and you know and writing newsletters and being on Twitter all the time. Like, but I think a lot of us in in industries that have been challenged by automation, like journalism, um, mm-hmm. have sort of subconsciously adapted in these ways that you know make sense when we look back at them. So yeah, I I did used to write formulaic stories. Uh, you know, I I wrote. The most boring corporate earnings reports you could ever imagine. You know, like Alcoa made you know seven million dollars in its smelting division last quarter. Yeah. Like that's the kind of stuff I was doing early in my career, and then I sort of started realizing like I need to kind of like put a little bit more of myself into my work because otherwise I'm replaceable, not necessarily by an AI, but just by another person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started infusing more of my personality into stuff and. Um, and I think that's what's happening in the media writ large right now is you're starting to see the kind of, it, it's almost like moving from like an industrial economy to an artisanal economy. It's mm-hmm. sort of like we used to be these factories, you know, newspapers used to be these factories that churned out, you know, like pink slime essentially. And like all content was sort of the institutional like voice from God. And it was like, it didn't matter who really who the bylines were because that wasn't really what people opened it for. And now you're starting to see kind of like what I call like artisanal content making, right. which is like, I am one person, you are following me. This is my opinion. This is my reporting. I'm not going to hide the fact that I am a person who made this. Um, and that's, I think we're we're headed not just in journalism, but in a lot of industries. Right, and it, it plays out not just in individuals, but in corporate corporations as well. Like you, you want to find that cool shop that's you know on the main drag of the groovy town that is you know not part of the uh, you know Pottery Barn Gap industrial complex. Like, and that's becoming harder and harder to do. So then we then develop a greater sense of value around those things. Yeah, there's a whole chapter about this in the book. Um, I did a lot of reading around the psychology of value and why we value certain things more highly than others. And there's a there's a concept in social science called the effort heuristic. And basically what it says is that we attach value to things that we think people worked really hard on. Um, so they've run experiments. There's a professor at UNC who's run all these experiments where he, you know, he gives people a bag of candy, and uh, and he says, you know, this candy was randomly selected for you, um, and people eat it, and they give another group of people the exact same bag of candy, but instead of saying this was randomly selected, they say a human picked this out for you, especially based on your tastes, and they. They love it. Like it's it. It makes a big difference in their appreciation of the thing when they think that someone else worked hard on it. So I think this is a really good roadmap for like where the economy and where our jobs are headed. Is I think that we have this tendency to want to say like, you know, we we want to sort of 
remove ourselves from from our work and sort of you know the the biggest compliment you could pay someone for a while is like oh he makes that look so easy mm. um, but i think that's actually not like i think what we're moving to is an economy in which people who you know people who say you know oh he works so hard on that like that becomes the thing that is that is valuable um everything that is done by machines will become cheap and and inexpensive and easy and everything that's done by humans will be valuable and and hard and will be rewarded for that hardness Right, I, I I don't necessarily want the coffee mug that I can buy at Target, but I really want the one that Seth Rogen made, you know, in his house <laughs> on his pottery. Wheel. I love Seth Rogen's pottery. I'm sort of obsessed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, and I and I think that's like so. One yeah. of the prints of one of the rules in the book in the second half of the book is is leave handprints because I think mm-hmm. we've gotten accustomed as sort of workers to kind of trying to like make everything we do perfect and and look effortless and like take away all traces of the fact that we struggled over something. Um, but I think what we what we should be doing is is really emphasizing the humanity that goes into something, emphasizing that we are, you know, people who are making things, who are doing labor in the world and that that, that and that that's what makes it valuable that we're not machines. Um, and there's a great talk by this guy um Jan Lacoon who's the head of uh, AI research at Facebook. And he uses the example of a a flat screen TV and a ceramic bowl, so kind of like mm-hmm. your your Seth Rogen mug. And he says, you know, flat screen TV is like an amazing piece of technology. It's got you know hundreds of parts. It's got rare earth metals. It's got lasers, and it's entirely made by robots, start to finish. And as a result, like you can get a pretty good TV for a couple hundred bucks. Um, but a ceramic bowl that's made by like a talented artisan. You know, technology that's been around for thousands of years—that's going to cost you probably more than the flat-screen TV. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is not because it involves more labor or more technology; it's because it's done by a human rather than a machine. And right. he thinks that's going to be the wave of the future. And I, I sort of agree. What's really interesting about that is is that we're seeing that sensibility getting played out in the digital space now with NFTs. Like isn't isn't an NFT a digital version of the one-off, you know, piece of pottery? Totally. And that's I am actually I'm I have some questions about NFTs. I'm actually writing about them right now. I'd love to know what you mm-hmm. think about them because I, I mean, think I'm that still I barely understand it at all. So You you haven't <laughs> paid 200 grand for a, a, a <laughs> no. gif of Michael Jordan. No. Um yeah, I mean, I, I think there's something to this idea of creating scarcity on the internet. Because, mm-hmm. you know, what enables the artisan to charge hundreds of dollars for that ceramic bowl is that there's only one of them. Right. And you can't, you know, duplicate it a million times for free. Um, and so I think you that's. You could, sorry to interject, but you could 3D print it. And create an exact replica of that in the way that you can copy a JPEG or a GIF, but there's still the understanding that it's not the original. Right, and there's some friction involved in that. It's not a it's not mm-hmm. a simple process, or it's not free and infinite the way that you know copying a file is. Um, so I think there is value in creating scarcity, a model for scarcity on the internet. I don't know whether NFTs are it. Um, you know, some there's been some reporting on sort of the environmental. Questions around NFTs right. and whether we we should be burning all this carbon to to like right. produce these. I love there was a tweet the other day that said like, yes, I I left 
11, you know, Ford F-150s idling for 15 hours, but now the computer says I own a drawing of Spider-Man, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which <right>. I loved. <laughs> but I, I don't I th- understand why so much carbon has to be burned for these, but obviously there's a, there's a reason that has to do with blockchain and stuff that I don't understand. Right, so yeah, I'll, I'll figure that out. I'll come back and tell you all about it, but I'm, I'm actually like, I'm, I'm glad that people are working on this because I think that one, Aspect, you know, one precondition for this kind of change in the economy where we're moving away from mass production and toward sort of artisan production is that you need to be able to protect scarcity and protect, Mm -hmm. you know, artists and and get them paid um, for doing these kind of specialized, um, you know, works. Um, and so that right now that doesn't really exist on the internet. So I'm I'm hopeful about NFTs. Maybe I'm a a sucker, but I I feel like it's it could be good for people, uh, people like us. Well, I think it's worth of we're just at the starting gate of something that I think could fundamentally change how we think about ownership and creation. We're seeing it now with JPEGs and pieces of art, but it doesn't take a huge mental leap to see how that impacts essentially everything that gets created. I mean, Kevin, you could write a short story or a book, make that an NFT and do a limited run. Like anything that you produce that is of you can be valued in a way that's very different than how we think about ownership and you know uh, demand you know currently. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Should I should I turn this book into an NFT? I think you should. I think that would be well. I mean, you're the perfect person to do it, right? Like that you could be. It could be like this meta. Charlie Kaufman esque, you know, sort of adaptation experience of like exploring the world of NFTs through a, you know, a, a, a work, a, a written work that is itself an NFT. Yeah, I'll have to talk to Random House. I'm not sure how copyrights <laughs> work in NFTs, but <laughs> well, I might I get a call from the lawyers. The publishing houses have any concept of this right now. <laughs> you don't think they're talking to Malcolm Gladwell about his next uh, book length NFT? I, I don't know, I don't, they should be. Whether they are or not, who knows? I mean, I've thought about it. I'm, I'm, um, I'm really intrigued by this, and I think it could be, you know, the answer to something that that artists and creators have been looking for for a long time. Because right now, the way that artists and creators get paid, most of them on on the internet, is that they put their content into these giant machines run by algorithms that we call YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and they. You know the platforms sell ads against them, and then they kick back. You know sometimes some small percentage of mm-hmm. what they're making to the creators who have no control over what that percentage is, and no control over the algorithm. And they they are basically like serfs in the like feudal <laughs> empires mm-hmm. that that these company that these platforms have built. And so I think any model that sort of allows people to kind of Cut out those middlemen is is a good one, and I probably shouldn't say that because I am, you know, I work for a middleman. <laughs> I'm like right. I'm part of the industrial content model here at the New York Times, but and I think there's a role for for institutions, and I, I'm not a burn it all down, you know, um, mass media is over. Like I don't think that's true, but I, I do think it's good for creators to have different models of getting paid. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. But you do have you do have one uh, you know one thing in the book, which is arm the rebels. So there's a little bit of a punk rock <laughs> aesthetic in here of you know rise up against the machines. Yeah, I mean, I, I, 
it's hard to talk about this stuff without sounding like I'm saying technology's bad and automation's bad and all this stuff is bad and things were better before. Like I don't I'm not like nostalgic like that. Like I grew up on the internet. I love the internet and I want it to be the best version of itself. And I also think that like the way that our internet is arranged right now is like not we're not like we're not doing so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I I have this in the in the book I talk about these two people um in the in the 19th century. Um one is Henry David Thoreau, who wrote Walden, and he was sort of the the grouchy like tech phobe of his day. You know, he was like, I, this this stuff all sucks, and it's, you know, I'm I'm moving to the woods, and I'm gonna write, mm. you know, I'm gonna write about my transcendental um, life in the woods. And there was also this other woman very close to him um, who is not as well known, um, but her name was Sarah Bagley. And she was a labor organizer. She actually was one of the people who worked in the factories in the Industrial Revolution and became a labor leader. And she advocated for, not for the machine, she wasn't a Luddite, she wasn't breaking machines, but she wanted workers to be treated better. She wanted the machines to produce more prosperity for the people who were operating them and not just Mm -hmm. for the owners. Um, And ultimately she became America's first female telegraph operator, which I love. Like she was sort of this groundbreaking person who was part of this technological revolution. And she uh, she did took the opposite approach. She she didn't run away from the technology. She leaned into it and she tried to make it fairer and better and more equitably distributed. And like I think that's the model I'm getting behind here. It's not mm-hmm. this stuff sucks and we should all you know, throw our phones in the nearest body of water and go live in the woods. Like, I think we have to engage with this, or else, you know, it it shapes us, and we don't get to shape it. Right. If you if you don't engage with it, then you truly do become a Thoreau esque character, and it's just not an option for navigating the world, especially if you're a young person. You have to be literate in these tools, but it becomes incumbent upon you to shoulder the responsibility of of you know managing your life in such a way that they're not commandeering your decision making and driving you towards outcomes that 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 you don't want. So a big part of the book in addition to canvassing what the workplace currently looks like and you know quite possibly will look like it's about uh tools for how to manage you know your own interior life, right? You talk about doing these digital detoxes and learning how to sort of be in charge of your phone rather than letting your phone be in charge of you. So talk a little bit about what that was like because you kind of did that experientially. Yeah, so I think one um, one hard thing, so the, the, the message of the book is, is pretty simple. It's that you know in order to survive this wave of AI and automation and keep our jobs and be happy and healthy and prosperous and good members of communities, we need to become more human. Pretty simple message. The hard part about that is there there are forces that are conspiring to make us less human. And some of those are are right on our phone. And so we interact with them every day. You know, today, before I, you know, came on this podcast with you, like I woke up, you know, I checked my phone, I saw what was happening on Twitter, checked my Instagram feed, you know, asked Alexa what the weather was gonna be like, listened to a Spotify you know, a, a Spotify playlist that was automatically generated for me. Like I am not, um, I am not a, a, a immune to these forces either. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that is kind of 
making us less individualized and differentiated and making us sort of more homogenous and, and, and I think less human. And so one of the things that I tried to do as part of this book is, is do this kind of phone detox, but it was not really about using my phone less. Like I, I think we all use our phones a lot. I'm not sure what's, what's your screen time like these days? Oh, it's I, I'm embarrassed to admit. I mean, just so many hours. I mean, it's with the pandemic, it's ramped up, and you know, it's just embarrassing as somebody who hosts a podcast about well-being to to then get that alert on Sunday that tells you how much you bet on your phone. I know. I I hate that alert so much for the last year. It's like, it's like I'm my, trying to disable it, but you can't. I don't think. No, it wants to shame you, and it wants yeah. to, to to tell you how badly you're doing. But I. I actually don't think like screen time itself is the problem. I think the problem is that we delegate authority to our phones. Um, you know, if you remember like the first phone you got, it was a tool, right? Like you used it to call people. You might have had texting, like the T9 texting. Like you would use that. You would use it as a calculator. You might, you know, use it to play Brick Breaker or Snake or whatever. But it was a tool. And then over time. The, they became sort of our bosses in this way. They tell us what to think about, um, what to do, you know, what to care about, what what news stories to read, who to communicate with, how to communicate with them. Um, they they sort of run our lives in this way that I think is very harmful. And so my phone detox, um, which I actually got a phone coach for, uh, mm. who who guided me through this thirty day process, um, like going to rehab for for phone addiction. But that's a was, future. That might be a future proof occupation. Oh, there are going to be phone, phone coach coaches in every town in America. Like this is going to be. If I, I were didn't a, even know that was a thing. If I were a brazen capitalist, I would open up like a, a, the world's largest center for phone rehab, and I would just have hundreds of thousands of people streaming into my uh, my my rehab centers every day because they they can't uh, they can't think for themselves anymore. So yeah, I think that's that's part of what I did to sort of try to future proof myself was to say like, mm -hmm. it's not just about using your phone less. It's not about being distracted. It's not about being productive. It's literally about like figuring out who you are and what you actually value and, and separating these categories of like identification and identity. Um, because I think our phones and the technology in our lives want us to blur those things together. So mm -hmm. I try to spend at least an hour Every day, just like no phone around me, I call it human hour, <laughs> and uh, and I go, I go, you know, work in my garden, or I take the dog out, or I do something that is just my time to kind of remind myself, like I am not, you know, my digital avatar. I am not, you know, a, a creature of the internet. I actually am a person in the offline world who has desires and hopes and beliefs and 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 values, and so that's sort of my daily chore is to remind myself, like I am not. Who I show up as on right. the internet, right? Um, yeah, it's super powerful. I mean, this is something that that Cal Newport has written extensively about. Everybody should read his book, Digital Minimalism. He's got this new book out about a world beyond email. Um, and I think the kind of mental leap, or what makes it so challenging, especially for somebody like yourself or, or myself, who you know plies their trade online to some degree. There's a feeling or a fear of of irrelevance, or if you opt out for a minute, that suddenly you're you're jeopardizing, you know, what it is that you do for a living, and decoupling that, like, you know, trying to understand that that's actually not true, and that it is core to, you know, the quality of what you do for a living 
to put distance between yourself and technology from time to time. Um, but it's 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 hard. It's hard. No, I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> like yeah. I struggle with this every day. And you know, my wife will tell you, like I I am not um <laughs> I am not yeah. an ideal um phone free, you know, meditator. Um, well, you have the ultimate like excuse. It's like this is my beat. I have to know what's going on in tech. I have to be on this all the time. Things are happening quickly. This is what I'm writing about. Exactly. If I'm up at 1 a.m. looking at TikToks, I mean that's that's work. Those are those are billable hours. Mm-hmm. No, but I think that that's sort of the story I tell myself. But in reality, like you know, these are very powerful machines. Uh, there are every time you look at your phone, you are looking at a device on which hundreds of billions of dollars have been spent to make you distracted from whatever else you might have been thinking about. Um, the world's smartest engineers are working on how to stop you from looking away from your phone. Mm-hmm. And so I think we we tell ourselves that we need to be plugged in, but actually I think there's some, something happening right now where like I am in awe of people who are not slaves to their technology. I mean, sometimes even when you read a book, you can just tell like, Oh, this person is not on Twitter. <laughs> like, it's almost transgressive when you see somebody reading a book. Yeah, and it's like they're they're more evolved than I am. Like they are mm-hmm. they are not in the same like they are eating, you know, artisanal slow food and I am over here like chowing down on KFC and like right. we are not the same. And so I think yeah. in 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 the present and in the future um there will be a real value to being able to separate yourself from your phone and your feeds and your technology, um, because that's how that's how we get better. I mean, everything in in life that is that it makes us better. Very little of it happens through the phone. It happens, you know, through taking on personal challenges, through you know, struggling, through raising families, through you know, building communities. Like that's the stuff that is really hard and, and really rewarding. Until we graduate to the ultimate virtual world where we can just upload our consciousness into an alternate reality and create the utopia of our dreams. Exactly. Or I just wanna I want the Wally chairs. Like I wanna I, wanna, <laughs> I just wanna be driven uh-huh. around by a robot and, and drink my big gulp uh, some days. But, to your uh, to your law school class at Walmart. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, if you if you were uh, giving counsel to a young person now who's listening to this, who's grappling with like, well, what should I pursue? Or you know, what would be the best you know, way to set myself up to be future-proof? What are some of the things other than just the general like, you know, double down on the soft skills? Like where would you, where is your head in terms of like where you would direct that person? Well, I, I have a, there's a chapter in the book called Learn Machine Age Humanities. and and. I don't think that just studying classics or philosophy or, you know, art history is enough. Like I don't think that's going to prepare people. But I do think there are these skills that we can teach people that will help them in no matter what they choose to study. So one of them is is this idea of guarding our attention. Uh, I think that's a really underrated skill. People who are able to kind of control what they pay attention to, what they think about, um, whether that's meditation, whether it's you know getting off their phones, whether it's reading books, I think that's a really important skill. Um, I think there are other skills that we can teach people, um, like like the value of rest. I mean, there's a really um, mm-hmm. counterintuitive thing that I, I sort of came across, which is that a lot of the people I knew who were the you know highest 
ranking people in AI and engineering and hyper, you know, hyper well-respected, thoughtful people were actually not working like 17-hour days. They were they mm-hmm. were taking time off. They were, you know, they were going home to their families. They were so one of them took naps during the day. I mean, these these are like the kinds of things that we would think, oh, that person's a slacker. They're not very productive. But actually, that's what allows them to do the kinds of creative and thoughtful human work that that machines can't replicate. Yeah, um, an, am- an amazing example of that would be Yuval Noah Harari, who goes on these extended silent meditation retreats, and he credits those experiences in addition to his daily, you know, however many hours he does it every single day with his ability to have that kind of objective perspective on on really big issues and the clarity that he can instill his writing with. Yeah, and I'm not as uh, as good at meditating as that. You know, I, I top out <laughs> Very at, few are. I top out at, you know, 10 yeah. or 12 minutes um, uh-huh. on my on my call map, but I try and I I think mm-hmm. that's a really important skill for people uh, to develop. And I also think that we're starting to see that there are classes and curriculums that are being sort of adapted slowly, uh, and mostly at sort of high-end, you know, elite schools. But you're starting to see things like, like there's a, a course, um, I think at Stanford, that's sort of no, I don't know what its actual title is, but it's it, it goes by uh, people refer to it as empathy for engineers. Mm-hmm. So they basically you know, take people who are computer scientists and teach them about people, teach them how to mm-hmm. you know be emotionally intelligent, how to read people's emotions, how to talk to people. It's sort of like remedial um, you know, people skills for, for super um, high IQ um, engineers. And you're starting to see that in more disciplines. There are you know, medical school classes now where they, they don't even talk about you know, medicine. It's, it's about how to talk to patients. It's about how to communicate with them empathetically and to solve their problems and to hear them out. So I think that's like the, the there's a venture capitalist, Frank Chen, who uh, invests in a lot of AI startups, and uh, the book that he recommends to people who work in in AI is this book called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, um, mm. and it's it's written you know decades ago by this by this minister, and it's all about kind of like the basic skills of human existence, you know, sharing, um, you know, like th- things that we learn in kindergarten and then kind of forget. And so his big thing is, you know, those are the skills of the future. And I, I agree. I think that we, we all could use a refresher course on the things that we learn in kindergarten. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, in the most general sense, I suppose, it's about uh, learning how to live your life um, uh, non-reactively and more consciously, right? To the extent that you can develop an objective sense to 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 an objectivity around just how much you're reacting to you technology and devices and develop the skill sets to kind of transcend that so that you can have you know the interior life and bring that into your not just your work but your families and your communities um, that seems to be the antidote yeah, and I think that's going to be a big part of how we get out of this. I mean, especially coming out of the pandemic, I think we're going to need a lot of really intentional work on ourselves because, you know, for the last year we've been experiencing the world primarily through our screens. We've sort of conflated who we are 
on the internet with who we are offline. And I think mm-hmm. we're, we have a lot of rebuilding to do there of getting back out in the community, getting back face to face with people um, when it's safe to do so, like figuring out what we actually care about and value and, and who we are. Because I think, and, and you all know Harari made this point in, in one of his books, like, if, if the algorithms know you better than you know yourself, then the power will transfer to them. Mm-hmm. Like you will no longer be in the driver's seat of your own life. These algorithms and AIs will. And that's not a good place to be. And I think that's something that I am conscious of every day and trying to sort of swim in the other direction from. Mm. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of round it out. Um, I love the book. I this think was so a, fun. It's a gift. This is cool, man. Well, if you ever if you're ever in LA, you got to come over and do it with me in person. Yeah, I would love to. Once I get my uh, second shot, I'll be. Uh, <laughs> so you had your fir- you had your first shot. You're waiting on the second one. I did. Yes. Yes. Yeah, cool. So, um, yeah. Next time we'll do it in person. Right. And maybe a final thought. I'm interested in in how you like today's pub day for your book. So obviously you're going out and you're doing press, and the way in which you know, authors try to market their books seems to change like almost every year in terms of like what works and what doesn't. Like the attention graph is such a radically, you know, elastic thing. Like it's it weird be, as hell, man. <laughs> and you you wrote about this the other day. Like you used to just, if you could just get on like, you know, the morning talk show, you're on the Today Show or Good Morning America. And then maybe you get, you know, uh, a nice review in the New York Times or you're in the, you know, the Sunday book section, like you're cool. And then it was about, the digital space, um, doing a bunch of podcasts or doing a Reddit AMA, which I know you did the other day, but like attention is so fractured now that it's so difficult to try to, you know, marshal the number of eyeballs that you would wish to have when you're sharing your work with the world. Yeah, and, and it's fun to experiment with things. I'm doing a, uh, you know, cause book tours obviously aren't happening. So I'm yeah. doing a, a clubhouse book tour. I'm going around oh, cool. and, and doing different rooms with different clubs on Clubhouse um, that are talking about some of these issues. Um, I'm going to have a virtual book party on Twitter tonight, Twitter Spaces tonight. Uh, so I'm 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 having fun experimenting. I'm right. sure it's very stressful to be a book publicist in the year 2021, but um, <laughs> that's not. You know, I just write the books. It's it's somebody else's yeah. job to sell them. Uh huh. No, that's not true. That's where you're wrong. It's your job. <laughs> The fact that you 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 have to understand that, like shoulder that responsibility, my friend. All right, I, I'm convinced. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, this was super fun. Um, I appreciate the work that you do. I always look forward to every new piece that you write. I love following you online. So, congrats on the new book. It's called Future Proof: Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Kevin's easy to find on the internet at Kevin Roos on Twitter and all the places. Anywhere else you wanna direct people? You've got this new newsletter now. Yeah, I got a new newsletter called Future Proof also. Um, it's mm-hmm. at futureproof.tips, T-I-P-S. Um, and you can, uh, I'll, I'll be sending out one newsletter a week on, on sort of the issues in the book and how you can be more human. Cool. All right, man, come and uh, talk to me again sometime. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Peace. Plants. Thanks for listening, everybody. For links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. 
Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page on richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis. Portraits by Ali Rogers and Davey Greenberg. Graphic elements, courtesy of Jessica Miranda. Copywriting by Georgia Whaley. And our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. You can find me at richroll.com or on Instagram and Twitter at richroll. I appreciate the love. I love the support. I don't take your attention for granted. Thank you for listening. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.